Now that brings us to chapter 2. And we have here in chapters 2 and 3 the possession of Jesus Christ, that is the church. The church which is his body, the church which he loved and gave himself for, and the believers in it which the Father gave to him. And he thanked the Father in the Lord's Prayer, John 17, for that. We are dealing with seven churches that will cover all of the churches, and we'll see that. And after chapter 3, the church is conspicuous by its absence. Up to chapter 4, the church has been mentioned 19 times. But from chapter 4 through chapter 20, the great white throne judgment, the church is not mentioned one time. The normal reaction is to inquire as to the destination and location of the church during this period. It's sure not in the world. It's been removed from the world. Now, these seven letters, they have a threefold interpretation and application. First of all, they have a contemporary meaning. That is, they had a direct message to the local churches of John's day. And I intend to take you in these next few studies that we have to the location of these seven churches. I've been to them several times now, and I want to go again and again and again because it's always been a thrill to me to visit these, to see, and I think you get closer to the Bible visiting these seven churches than you do even walking through the land of Israel. And there was a message which is obvious when you see the ruins of those churches that John was writing to local churches that he knew all about. As Sir William Ramsey said, the man who wrote these seven letters to seven churches, he had been there and he knew the local condition. Now, there is a second meaning, and that is known as the composite. Each one is a composite picture of the church. In other words, there is something that is applicable to all churches in all ages in each message to each individual church. When you read the message to the church in Pergamum, you can get a message there for your church and for yourself personally. That's the composite message that is there. And then there is a third interpretation and application, and that's the one I'm going to emphasize and that's the chronological. There's first the contemporary, second the composite, third the chronological, and here you are given the panoramic history of the church. It's given in these seven letters from Pentecost to the Parousia, from the upper room to the upper air. There are seven distinct periods of church history, and apparently we are in the last one today, and that of Laodicea or we're pretty close to it. Ephesus represents the apostolic church, the church at its best. That's the first one. Laodicea, the last church, represents the apostate church, all the way from the apostolic to the apostate. And this prophetic picture is largely fulfilled and is now church history. And that makes it extremely remarkable, by the way. Now, the Lord will follow a well-defined and definite format in addressing each church. And that's the reason the book of Revelation is a rather simple book, because of the fact that there is laid down for us in this book the best organized material 
that you'll find in any book of the Bible. There's no book of the Bible that is organized as this book is. And he'll follow a very definite format. Now, we said last time we were going to call attention to the well-defined and the definite format that the Lord Jesus used in each one of these letters to the seven churches. First of all, there was some feature of the glorified Christ, which we saw in chapter 1, that was lifted from the vision in that chapter, and it was emphasized in addressing each church. And a particular thing was emphasized for a particular purpose, of course. And then the second thing that's noticeable, the letters are addressed to the angel of each church. And as we said, the angel, we believe, is just a human messenger and was, I believe, what we would call the pastor of the church today. And I'm going to stick by it. I love to hear a pastor call an angel because I've heard him call everything else. Now, the third thing He begins by stating to each, I know thy works. Now, there's been some question about a couple of these letters. The fourth thing, he first gives a word of commendation, and then he gives a word of condemnation. That is his method. I think the exception should be noted. There is no word of condemnation to Smyrna or Philadelphia. Smyrna was the martyr church, and he's not about to condemn that church. And Philadelphia was the missionary church that's getting out the Word of God, and he didn't condemn it. There is no word of commendation for Laodicea. That is the apostate church. And then the fifth thing we call your attention to is this. Each letter concludes with the warning, "...he that hath an ear..." Let him hear what the Spirit saith. This makes this, therefore, a tremendous letter, a tremendous message, by the way. This is the second major division in the book. These are the things that are church-related things. And we are going to find out in each one of these messages, beginning here with the first Ephesus, And we have here in the first seven verses of the second chapter the letter that the Lord Jesus sends to this church there. We today probably are not conversant with the fact that in the first and second centuries, letter writing and travel were just commonplace in the Roman Empire. There was extensive communication throughout the Roman Empire that period. And so these seven letters of the apocalypse are very remarkable for other reasons. And the most important, it's the direct letter from Christ to the churches. And therefore, we have two epistles to the Ephesians, the epistle that Paul wrote, and now the epistle that John wrote. And the Lord Jesus is the one that's sending it through John here. Dr. Dysmon, years ago, in his book, Light from the Ancient East, he made distinction between letters and epistles, which actually is proven to be artificial and entirely false. These seven letters had a very large and extensive outlet. They reached multitudes of people. You see, they were addressed to an area, and I want to say a word about these seven churches in general. They were 
outstanding churches in that day. However, there were other outstanding churches. And this area of the Roman Empire was probably the most important part of the Roman Empire in the first and second and even the third centuries. And the reason is that here is where East and West met. By 2000 B.C., there was a civilization along this coast of Asia Minor, as we know it today, the west coast of Turkey there. It's a very beautiful area, very lovely area. It reminds me a great deal of Southern California, but it's without smog, of course. And it's as beautiful country as you will see anywhere. And some of the richest land is there. Here was the great heart of the great Hittite nation in ancient times. And by 2000, there were these cities that were inhabited. Ephesus was inhabited at 2000 B.C. So was Smyrna, which is modern Ismia, and Pergamum, obviously a little later on. And then Thyatira and Sardis came along probably later and were made great in the times of Alexander the Great. And that was known as the Anatolian civilization that met the Greek civilization there. And you can always tell the difference. The gods of the Anatolians, which were a more primitive people, their gods were beasts, whereas the gods of the Romans were human beings, actually, projected out and made large, of course. So that what you have here are letters that travel through that area, and the impact actually was tremendous at that time. For instance, when you come to the city of Ephesus, it was a city of about 200,000 people, actually. It was a great city, and they had this great outdoor theater there that would seat 20,000. And it was a city that was made of white marble. It was a beautiful place. Paul comments on that. And we may think that the impact of the gospel was not great in that particular area. But if we think that, we're entirely wrong. Actually, in the city of Ephesus, it made such an impact that at the entrance to the harbor, there were four great pillars. And they have the cross. Only one stands today. It has the cross on it. And one was to Matthew, one to Mark, one to Luke, and one to John. You see that after Paul and after John, there was a tremendous Christian population in that area. And even Dr. Luke could write concerning that area that all in Asia, both Jew and Gentile heard the gospel. And there could have been upwards of 25 millions of people in that area. Here is the place where the Roman emperors came. It was a great resort area. And here is the place, as we've said, where east is east and west is west. And the twain did meet there. And it formed a great civilization. And here is where Paul had, I suppose, his greatest ministry was in the city of Ephesus. And out from there, the gospel was sounded forth 
throughout all of Asia, Dr. Luke says, so that all heard it, both Jew and Greek. Now, not all turned to Christ, but everyone heard it. That was probably the greatest movement and the greatest what we would call revival that has taken place in the history of the church. It took place in that particular area. Now, I want us to get into this message and into this letter that he writes to Ephesus. And I want to say just another word about this city. It was a beautiful city. When Paul landed at the harbor, there was that great harbor boulevard, white marble, and it's there today. And on each side, there were all sorts of lovely buildings, temples, and also certain shops that they had there, gift shops, I guess the ladies would call them today. There was a great market on the right as he went up, and then ahead of him on the side of the mountain was this great amphitheater, not really the amphitheater, but this great theater that seated 20,000. Way off to the left of him was the amphitheater that seated over 100,000 people at times probably as many as a million to two million people gathered in Ephesus. Here is where Paul had his greatest ministry, and here is where John later became pastor. Now, the city was first formed around the temple of Diana by the Anatolians, and they worshipped Diana of the Ephesians. And the temple at first was a wooden structure, It was built at the very beginning on a very low place, right by the side of the ocean. The harbor came right up there. But in time, the Caista and the Little Meander River, I have never in my life seen a country that washes as much as that Meander Valley washes. I tell you, the river itself is like soup. It's not just water, it's soup. It's carrying down so much deposit. And it soon filled in around the temple. By the time of Alexander the Great, the night he was born, that temple burned. And when he came there and took the city, he turned it over to one of his generals, Lysimachus. And Lysimachus there attempted to move the people away from there because already the silt, was coming in, the harbor was filling up, and they had to move farther down, and he moved them to higher ground. And that's where you see the ruins of that city today. It's the city that was there when Paul came there. Then on the ruins of where the old temple was, they put on charcoal and skins. It was a very low place. They built the temple of Diana. It became one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was built, as we said, on an artificial foundation of skins and charcoal. It was to make it actually earthquake-proof, and it was built on a marsh that was there. The doors of it were of carved cypress wood. The staircase was carved out of one vine from Cyprus. It was a regular art gallery with the masterpieces of Praxiteles, Phidias, Scopus, Polycletus, and Apelles' famous painting of Alexander the Great was there. But behind the purple curtain was that awful shrine, the most sacred idol of heathenism, Diana, the many-breasted one. And it was the largest Greek temple ever built, 418 feet, one inch by 
239 feet, four and a half inches. There were 100 external columns, and there is some difference of opinion, of course, about the exact size of it. But it was four times larger than the Parthenon, and it was finally destroyed by the Goths in 256 A.D. So that this great temple that was there in Paul's day and around it, the grossest immorality was performed. Because when you move farther inland, it becomes nothing in the world but sex orgies, and her name is changed from Diana to Sybil. Now, this gives you some conception of this place. And if you want to know how wonderful that temple was, that is, as far as the physical beauty was concerned, if you ever go to Istanbul, go to Hagia Sophia. And those beautiful green columns that are there were taken out of the temple of Diana by Justinian when he built Hagia Sophia. And actually, this temple was really a thing of beauty. The temple of Artemis are of Diana. And she was the oriental goddess of fertility, the many-breasted one. She had a trident in one hand and a club in the other. And it was a crude image that stood in the temple. And it was worshipped by probably more people than any other form of idolatry. The worshipers here indulged in, I suppose, the basis religious rites of sensuality. The wildest bacchanalian orgies took place, excessive and vicious. It would make some of the present-day new morality look like a Sunday school picnic. Now, Paul came here, you will recall, on his third missionary journey to begin his ministry. And for two years in the school of Tyrannus, the word went out. And it was a great door and effectual that was open unto him. But there were many adversaries. And John, the apostle of love, the son of thunder, he came as a pastor. He was exiled. And then after about ten years of being exiled and in prison, he returned to Ephesus. And he's buried at the Basilica of St. John that is on the highest point there. Now, the Lord Jesus Christ speaks to this church in the midst of crass materialism, degraded animalism, base paganism, and dark heathenism. And will you listen to him as he speaks to this church? Because, very frankly, I think this is one of the most important of all. Will you notice what he says? Unto the angel of the church of Ephesus write, these things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, who walketh in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. Do you notice that he holds with his hands the church? It's under his control. He doesn't have it today, but he did then. And he walks up and down. I think he's still walking up and down and still judging his church. And you're seeing him do that. Now he has here seven words of commendation that he says to this church. He says, I know your works. We need to understand that he's speaking to believers. God is not asking the lost world for works. It's not by works of righteousness which we've done, but according to his mercy that he saved us by the washing of regeneration. This is the thing that is important. Paul says in Romans 
4, 5, "...but to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness." Now, Christ is talking to his own here. After they're saved, he wants to talk to you about good works. And he has a lot to say about good works. We are told, "...for by grace are ye saved through faith, not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk into him." And Paul could write to Titus in the epistle of Titus 1.16, they profess that they know God, but in works they deny him, being abominable and disobedient, and to every good work reprobate. This is very important for us to see, by the way. Someone has said that the Christian ought to be like a good watch, all gold, open face, well-regulated, dependable, and filled with good works. And so here he's saying to this church, as Paul had said, be filled with the Holy Spirit. Then he told them what you can do as a Spirit-filled believer. And now the Lord commends them for their good works. And then he says, and thy labor. Now, what's the difference between works and labor? Well, this word labor has in it the meaning of weariness. Jesus being wearied with his journey. They got tired working for the Lord got weary in the working. Now, the third thing he mentions here, commends them for, is their patience. That's the fruit of the Holy Spirit. And also the fourth thing is, and how thou canst not bear them which are evil. They couldn't bear evil men. The fifth thing that is mentioned here, thou didst try them which say they're apostles and are not, and hast found them liars. Now, they tested anyone that came into Ephesus and said he was an apostle. And if they found out that he wasn't an apostle, they'd ask him whether he'd seen the resurrected Christ. And they soon found out whether he really was an apostle. And if he wasn't, why, they just told him to leave town, and they generally got out of town. In other words, they always tested, which I think is certainly more true today even than then. Now he says, and is born, and has patience, and for my name's sake has labored. Now you'll notice, for his name's sake, they were bearing the cross. They preached Christ. They believed in the virgin birth. They believed in his deity and his sacrificial death. And they paid a price for it. And the seventh thing is, and has not fainted. It really is, has not grown weary. What does he mean? He said before that they had grown weary. Now he says they haven't grown weary. Well, this is one of the great paradoxes of the Christian faith. And I think I can illustrate it by what Dwight L. Moody once said. When he came home after a campaign, he was woven out. His family begged him not to go to the next one. And he told them, he says, I grow weary in the work, but not of the work. And there's a lot of difference. You can get weary in the work of Christ, but it's tragic if you get weary of the work of Christ. Now, these are the words of commendation that he has to say to the apostolic church. Seven words of commendation. Now, one word of condemnation 
here in verse 4. Now, I'm going to change the reading here in order to get at the meaning. Nevertheless, I have against thee that thou hast left thy best love. Now, actually, we are beginning to think that the Lord Jesus is just picking at peccadilloes, that it seems rather slight, seems to be trivial, petty. Is he being picayunish here when he says that you're leaving your best love? Well, may I say to you, it may seem very slight to you and me today, but it was very important then, and it's very important today, and we're going to see why it was so important. And this is where the church first went off the track, not on doctrine, but in a personal relationship to the Lord Jesus. Now, Ephesus was a great city. It was one of the great cities of that day, and it was a great commercial center. It was a great religious center, and it was a great political center. But this city was a seacoast city at that time. It's not today. The Little Meander River has silted in and filled in the harbor that actually it's about six miles from where it was in the days of the original Temple of Diana, because at that time the waters lapped up at the very base of the temple. In fact, it was built in a swamp. And then later on, this temple burned down, and then Alexander the Great led in the building of the one that became one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. We described that last time. It was probably the greatest center of heathenism that has ever been on the earth. It was the largest Greek temple ever built, four times larger than the Parthenon in Rome. And it was, of course, a thing of beauty. Paul had a great ministry there. The impact of that ministry can be seen actually in the ruins of the city. There at the entrance to the harbor, because Lysimachus moved the city to higher ground, and the ruins we see there today are those ruins of that city, the city that Paul visited. The harbor had moved way far down, and it was a very small harbor, but the ships of that day could get into it. And you landed at the foot of Harbor Boulevard, a great wide white marble boulevard that led right up to this great theater, and along the way there were temples and lovely buildings. And then there were four great towers that were built there, four great monuments, one to Matthew, one to Mark, one to Luke, and one to John. That shows that the gospel had made a tremendous impact in that area. And there are other evidences of it, where pagan heathen temples were later on turned into churches. And the church in Ephesus became a very prominent church. Paul founded it, and then John the apostle became pastor later on. Now, we saw last time that there were seven words of commendation that the Lord had for this church. It was the best church of all. It represents the apostolic period up to about 100 A.D., to about the death of John. 
It was the church at its best. Never has the church reached such a high spiritual level as this church did. And these things he commend them for are wonderful things. But he always had a word of commendation first, and then a word of condemnation. But as we've noted, there are two exceptions to that, and we'll see one of them in the next church that we visit and see here. Now, he says in verse 4, a word of condemnation. Nevertheless, I have against thee that thou hast left thy best love. That seems ever so trivial. Why does he say that? What he's really saying, that you're leaving your first love. They hadn't departed. Well, it's difficult for us in this cold, indifferent day in which we live, in this very skeptical and cynical age in which we live, where the church is so caught up in the things of the present. In other words, the world has intruded into the church today in a very definite way. But you and I can't conceive the intense and enthusiastic devotion to the person of Christ that the early church had. The Holy Spirit had brought the believers in Ephesus into an intimate and personal relationship with Jesus Christ, whereas they could say to him, as I trust that you and I can today, Lord Jesus, I love you. And they were getting away from that first love. I tell you, Ephesus, with all of its attractions, and it was a great city, it was beginning to draw them away. And it was this church that became such a potent church in evangelism. That entire area, probably 25 millions of people, and even the Roman emperors and the nobility that attended there, they all heard the gospel. They had an opportunity to hear it. And they saw a moving of the Spirit of God that probably has not been duplicated since then. But every now and then we meet someone that has been brought into that close personal relationship with Christ. There are many men we could mention. I'm just going to use one example today. David Brainerd, the missionary to the Indians in this country, he was suffering with what was known in that day as consumption, or today as tuberculosis. And he would travel along by horseback, and sometimes he'd have a regular convulsion, vomit blood, become unconscious, fall off his horse, lie in the snow there. And when he'd do that, the horse learned to just stay right there. When he came to, he'd crawl back on the horse on his way out to preach to the Indians. Why, he would cry out, Lord Jesus, I've failed you, but you know that I love you. Oh, how these folk had been brought in the past into such a close, intimate, personal relationship with Christ. And friends, that's the all-important thing today. We are so involved in methods. I get rather amused at all of these Band-Aid courses that are making Band-Aid believers. It's some little legal system, generally, 
where if you follow certain rules and you observe certain psychological patterns, you're going to solve all your problems. You'll be able to get along with yourself. That's a pretty good order right there. And then you can get along with your neighbors. You can get along with everybody, and especially your wife. All of those things are very important, and they are the problem today. And a great many people think if they get a few rules, and they think that solves the Christian life. May I put it in a nutshell? Do you love Jesus Christ? Now, I don't care what your system is, your denomination is, your program is, your little set of rules. They all come to naught if you don't love Him. And if you love Him, well, some systems are better than others. But most any system will work if you love Him. That's the important thing. And it will make your relationship to Christ, your service, it'll make everything more beautiful, more wonderful. The story is told in New England years ago when they had so many cotton mills there. Two girls worked in a cotton mill. One of them quit, and the other one quit later and got married. And so they hadn't seen each other for a long time. They met on the street, and this girl had quit first, said to the other, how are you getting along? And she said, fine, says, I got married. And she had asked her the question first. She says, are you still working? And she said, no, I'm not working. I got married. And you talk about working. Well, that girl, when she worked in that mill, she watched that clock every evening. When five o'clock came, I tell you, she's walking out of there. She's got her hat on. She's on the way out. And it was hard work, and she didn't like it at all. Now she's married. And is she working now? Well, she said she's quit working. She got married. But if you go and see, she married this fellow, and she gets up of the morning, she fixes his lunch, and that's early. And then she throws arms around him, tells him goodbye. And then all day long, she's working with two little brats, I should say, two little angels. They're hers. And my, I tell you, they keep her busy. And then when five o'clock comes, why, she begins dinner. She doesn't quit work. She starts cooking dinner. Long about six o'clock, here comes the husband. And she's right there at the door to throw arms around his neck and tell him how much she missed him that day. You know, friends, when you come home of an evening and there's nobody there to greet you and you open the door and step in and a voice from way upstairs or way somewhere in the house says, Is that you? The honeymoon's over, friends, when that takes place. But this girl, you see, she's in love. And she's not working anymore. But do you think she quit working at five? She just really got going, feeding those children and putting them to bed. That's not easy. And I tell you, she was weary when she finally got in bed. And this poor girl, she's not working. That's the difference. I tell you, friends, when church work becomes a burden to you, there's something wrong with your relationship with Christ. When you get that straightened out, other things will get straightened out also. Now, will you notice what he says here? That you're getting away from your first love, your best love, the Lord Jesus. And that is the solution. Now, what are they to do? In verse 5, he says, Remember, therefore, from whence thou art fallen. First, remember. Memory is a marvelous thing. 
A memory is something God has given us, has been said, so we can have roses in December. But here in California, we have them because we all got short memories out here. We have the real roses. But memories are marvelous things. Someone said it's a luxury that only a good man can enjoy. Remember, do you remember when you were converted? Do you remember what a thrill it was and what the Lord Jesus meant to you? And have you become cold and indifferent? Have you gotten away from him today? Are you in a backslidden condition? Remember. Remember where you were, and you can get back there. And he says, and repent. And believe me, we need that today. Repent. We need to break the shell of self-sufficiency, the crust of conceit, the shield of sophistication, and the veneer of vanity, and get rid of the false face of piosity, and stop this business of everlastingly polishing our halo as if we're some great saint. Repent. Go to him. And repent means to return back to him. And repentance is the message for believers today. How dare the church tell an unsaved man to repent? What he needs to do is to turn to Christ. Now, when he turns to Christ, he'll turn as the Thessalonians did from idols. Whatever his sin is, he'll turn from it. But you've got to turn to Christ first. And that's the way the Thessalonians did it. How ye turn to God from idols to serve the living God. Wait for a son from heaven. But the church needs to repent. And that's a message they don't want to hear today. Repent and do the first works, or else I'll come unto thee quickly, and I'll remove thy lampstand. Remember, repent, and return unto him. Or he'll come quickly, and he'll remove Thy lamp stand out of his place, except thou repent. He says, I'll remove your lamp stand. And how many churches have been practically closed? The one time the crowds came, but they don't anymore, because the Word of God is no longer being taught. And my friend, may I say to you, he's still watching the lamps, and he doesn't mind trimming a wick, and he doesn't mind using the snuffers, when it refuses to give light. Now he says to this church, "...but this thou hast, that thou hatest the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate." And we're going to have them before us again. We might say here, the word is a double word. Nikao means to conquer, rule, and laos means the people. We get our word laity from that. And it's difficult to identify who the Nicolaitans were. There are some that think it was a priestly order that was beginning to take shape, and they attempted to rule over the people. The second is that there's no way of identifying this group with any in the early or late church history. And then the third explanation that's been offered is that there was a man by the name of Nicolaus of Antioch. And he apostatized from the truth, and he formed an antinomian Gnostic cult, which taught that one could indulge in sin in order to understand it. They gave themselves over to sensuality with the explanation that sins 
did not touch the spirit. And that Nicolaitan refers to this cult. And I rather think that's the best explanation. The church here in Ephesus hated it. Later on, we'll see the church in Pergamos tolerated it. Now he says, "...he that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. He that hath an ear," that is, that blood-tipped ear. Not everyone can hear the Word of God. Oh, I know they can hear the audible sound, but they miss the message. And this is a phrase that the Lord Jesus uses to alert dull ears. Remember, he used that expression. They have ears to hear, but they hear not. Now, he speaks to those with spiritual perception, and I hope you're listening today. Now, the Spirit here is the Holy Spirit. He's the teacher of the church. And it says to him that overcometh, that refers to the genuine believer. And we can only overcome through the blood of the Lamb. Now he says, I'll give to him to eat of the tree of life. And if you'll recall, man was forbidden to eat of this tree after the fall. But in heaven, the no trespassing sign will be taken down, and they'll be given the privilege, all of us, to eat of the tree of life. Now, what kind of fruit it is, I don't know. But I think it's going to really enable you to live it up. Oh, Most of us really don't know much about living yet. We just have sort of a vegetable existence down here. But we're going to have a good fruit existence up there. We'll eat of the tree of life. And we're going to live as we've never lived down here before. Now, the paradise of God that's mentioned here means the garden of God. Heaven is a garden of green primarily. And it's not just a place with streets of gold. Let's not emphasize that too much, by the way. Now we come to the church in Smyrna, and this is the martyr church. This is the church that died for him. Now, the word Smyrna, we get our word myrrh from it. Actually, it means suffering. And this city is still in existence. The name it has today, the Turkish name, may lead you astray, but it's Ismir. But it's the same city, and it's been in continuous occupation from the time it was founded, and it goes back a long ways. I have been there. In fact, we stay in Ismir when we visit that area. There's a lovely hotel there, the Grand Ephes Hotel, and it's in a very commercial city. There are those that tell us that Ismir will someday, and not too many days hence, it will be larger than Istanbul. It will certainly be a larger commercial center. And because of that and the tremendous population there, and it practically covers up so much of the ruins of the ancient city that you're apt to miss the beauty of it. Now, I have some pictures that I have taken, that slides I use when I give an illustrated message, and I try to call attention to the beauty of that harbor. It's one of the most beautiful harbors, and a very large one, by the way. It's one of the loveliest cities of Asia, 
It's called a flower. It's called a crown, an ornament, and it's been called the crown of all Asia. And the Acropolis is on Mount Pagos. In fact, the early city that goes back to about 2000 was a Hittite city at that time. It was around the slope of Mount Pegasus. And later on, Alexander the Great had a great deal to do with the building of it. The city that was so beautiful, it had wide boulevards along the slopes of Mount Pegasus. And then on top was the city. It was called the crowning city because it had a row of flowers and a hedge that went all the way around, and then myrtle trees that went all the way around. And it was adorned with beautiful temples and noble buildings. That was the temple of Zeus, the temple of Sybil, and Sybil was actually Diana, and the temple of Aphrodite and Apollo and Aesculapius, and also Ismir had a theater. And it had an odeon, that is, a music center. It was the home of music. And there was a stadium there. And it was in that stadium where Polycarp, who was a student of John, the apostle, and, of course, knew him. He was the bishop of Smyrna. And he was martyred in the stadium, burned alive in 155 A.D., now, in Christian literature, Smyrna means suffering. St. John, in his letter addressed to the church, said, I know your suffering and your poverty. Now, it is one of the few cities that is still in existence today, having had continuous habitation from the very beginning. And one other church that the Lord Jesus addresses Philadelphia, the two churches that he had no word of condemnation for, these are the two churches that have had continuous existence, none of the others. Their lampstand has really been moved. But there are a few Christians in Smyrna. They're undercover. I'm told there are no Christians in Ephesus, that little Muslim Turkish town. Now, in Ismir, there are a few and they have made a very indirect contact with us when we've been there. They do not want to come out in the open because Christians are persecuted over there even today in Turkey. Now, there's a great deal we could say about this city, but we want now to see something of the mechanics of the format that the Lord Jesus uses in writing. Now, this city covers the period from about 100 A.D. to approximately 314 A.D., from the death of John to the Edict of Toleration by Constantine, which was given in 313 A.D., and it ended the persecution of Christians, not only in Smyrna, but all over the Roman Empire, and especially Rome. We find that the leaders of the church were first killed at the beginning. Now let's come to the text. And I'm coming here to verse 8 of chapter 2. And we have here the Lord Jesus addressing this church. And it's his briefest message. And it was all commendatory. Everything that he has to say was good. Now let me read verse 8. 
And I'm going to read from my translation here. To the messenger of the church in Smyrna, write, These things saith the first and the last who became dead and lives. The Lord Jesus will reach back and take out of that vision of the things thou hast seen the glorified Christ as our great high priest in the midst of the lampstand. He'll take out one of the descriptions and one of the things that's said about him to address each church. And I think each one has a particular reference to the church. And he chose from the vision of himself the first and the last who became dead and lived. Now, the first and last means there was nothing before him and there's nothing to follow him. He has the final disposition of all things. He is the one in charge. Now, the persecuted believers needed to know this, that he was the one in charge and that it was in the plan and purpose of God. Now, he said, who became dead and lived. That has a real message for martyrs. It speaks of the death and resurrection of Christ, and his experience with death identified him with the five millions who were martyred during this period. Fox says there were five million that died for Christ in this period. He was triumphant over death and can save to the uttermost those who are enduring persecution and martyrdom. Now he has something to say here. To them, he says, I know your works. This is verses 9 and 10. I know thy works and tribulation and poverty, but thou art rich. And I know the blasphemy of them which say they're Jews and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. Fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you in prison, that ye may be tried. And ye shall have tribulation ten days. Be thou faithful unto death, and I'll give thee a crown of life. Now, there are seven things here that he says to this church. And these are the things the Lord commended in the church. He mentions tribulation first. Actually, works are not in the best manuscript here. And I personally have left it out. If you want to include it, fine. But tribulation here is that we need to understand. Of course, it's not the great tribulation. It's trouble. And since the awful persecution of the church by the Roman emperors is not called the great tribulation, surely our small sufferings that we are enduring today couldn't be called the great tribulation. So that they were suffering for Christ. And the second thing, that he commended them for their poverty and he denotes their lack of material possessions. You know, the early church was made up largely of the poorer classes. When the wealthy believed their property was confiscated because of their faith, he says, but thou art rich. And that denotes the spiritual wealth of the church, blessed with all spiritual blessings. And notice the contrast here to the church in Laodicea. We'll come to it later. But the church in Laodicea was rich. But our Lord said, you're really poor and you don't know it. I get rather amused about this. And 
I speak in several places where there are conferences, and they like to tell me that there are several millionaires in the congregation. And I'm glad they tell me that, because I sure never found it out any other way. You'd never know it by their support of the Through the Bible radio program, I can assure you. Well, anyway, they like to speak of prominent people that are members of their church, or rich people that are members of the church. You know, the early church, this martyr church couldn't brag about that. They had slaves in there, ex-slaves, runaway slaves, freed slaves, poor people. Not any in there that was rich, not many that had property. He also says that there were Jews outwardly. You know, there's only been a remnant down through the years of these people that have truly been God's people. Paul says all Israel is not Israel. The thing that makes the Jew a Jew and actually makes him one that belongs to the nation Israel, it's his religion. That is the thing that identifies him. Actually, he was a Syrian. That's what the Lord said to him. A Syrian ready to perish was my father. That was a picture of him. That's what he was nationally. That's what he was racially. But now they had denied their religion. And though they might say they're Jews, actually when a Jew gives up his religion, there's a question whether he's a Jew or not. And in Germany, many tried to do that, by the way. Now, Smyrna was a city of culture in which many Jews had discarded their belief in the Old Testament. It was a very wealthy city from the very word go, and it is today. And the fourth thing, he says, fear nothing. That's the encouragement of the Lord to his own in the midst of persecution. This is the second time in this book that the Lord has offered this encouragement. History tells us that multitudes went to their death singing praises to God. Then the fifth thing, it says the devil and Satan, they're the same person. And we're going to look at this fearful creature later on. But Christ labels him as being responsible for the suffering of the saints. We tend to blame the immediate person or circumstance which serves as Satan's tool. But the Lord Jesus goes back to the root trouble. Very frankly, if I may inject a personal word, in my book, Why Do God's Children Suffer?, I could classify and pigeonhole everything that had come to me under the different ways. God judged me. God chastened me. But this last act was puzzled. And quite a few people began to write in and said, we believe Satan is responsible. And that, I think, is the explanation of reason I've had so many physical problems. Now, the sixth thing that he mentioned here, you'll have tribulation ten days. There were ten intense periods of persecution by ten Roman emperors. And I want to mention those. I think it's important. First, there was Nero from 64 to 68 A.D. And Paul was beheaded under the reign of Nero. Then Domitian from 95 to 96. And he was lots worse than Nero. And John was exiled during that period. And then Trajan, 104 to 117. 
and Ignatius was burned at the stake. And then Marcus Aurelius, 161 to 180, and Polycarp was martyred in that period. Then there was Severus, and I won't give dates, but Maximinius, Decius, Valerian, Aurelian, and then finally Diocletian, 303 to 313. He was the worst emperor of all. Now, here you have these ten Roman emperors that led in an awful persecution of Christians. Now, the seventh thing that he mentions here, they were faithful unto death. That means they were martyred. Now, he says he's going to give them a crown of life. And this is a special crown for those who suffer. It's quite interesting that the Lord has special crowns. And I know a lot of wonderful saints that are going to get that crown someday. And I'd like to just say that to so many people that are listening today. You're on a bed of pain, or you may be an invalid, and you've wondered, well, he's got something good for you someday. You're going to get something that no one else will be getting except those in your group. James had said this, if you recall back in James 1.12, "'Blessed is the man that endureth temptation or testing.'" For when he's tried, he shall receive the crown of life, which the Lord hath promised to them that love him. And that crown of life means you're going to really live it up someday. My friend, what a glorious thing's in prospect for you folk at a day that are invalids or on beds of pain and sickness. May God bless you. <laughs> My, what a glorious thing it's in prospect here. Now he says in verse 11, he that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith to the churches. Always he says that. Do you hear him? Is he speaking to you? He that overcometh shall not be hurt of the second death. I think Dwight L. Moody put it like this. He that is born once will have to die twice. He that's born twice will only die once. And he may not even have to die that one time. And he'll not be hurt of the second death. And that is the death that no believer will experience. The first death concerns the body. The second death is the soul and spirit, eternal separation from God. That's what it means. No believer will have to undergo that. Now we come to the letter of Christ to the church in Pergamum. And Ismir is the great city where we all go to today when we go to that land. The airport is there. The hotels are there. Now you go about 65 miles south to get to Ephesus. But you go about 70 miles north to get to Pergamum. Now these are the three great cities. They were royal cities, and they vied one with the other. Ismir was the great commercial center. Pergamum was the great religious center. And actually, Ephesus was the great political center. There's where the Roman emperors came, to Ephesus. And I didn't have time to go in it, but I've been down that beautiful marble boulevard there that's on the side of the mountain. And along there's the Temple of Trajan. It's the fountain, actually, of Trajan, but a temple. There is the temple of Hadrian. They worship the emperors there. It's a great political center primarily. But now we come to the great religious center, and it's going to be where Satan's headquarters was. 
And actually, it's in the most beautiful spot that's in that land. And as we've said before, it looks like the devil manages always to get those beautiful spots. It was a highly fortified stronghold city. It was the capital of the kingdom of Pergamum. It was a royal city with its acropolis dominating the whole region of the valley of the Caicos. The Caicos River flowed down any direction you look on any side. You see the most beautiful valley you've ever seen. And Pergamum was the center of evils because of its many pagan temples. The temples of Athena, Demeter, Hera, Dionysius, Escalapius, and he was the god of healing, and the great altar of Zeus. They stand like a throne on top of the Acropolis. John says to this church that this is where Satan's throne was. Now I'm reading verse 12. And to the angel of the church in Pergamos write, These things saith he which hath the sharp sword with two edges. This is the letter of Christ to the church in Pergamum. Now, it fits in to church history in a period that is approximately 314 A.D. to approximately the period of 590 A.D. I call this paganism unlimited. Here is the time that the world entered into the church, and it began to move away from the person of Christ. It had a message, of course, to the local church in Pergamum, and I'd like to say a word about this city. It was a city in Mysia. It was labeled by Pliny as by far the most illustrious of Asia. It was in, first of all, one of the most beautiful spots. Sir William Ramsey says that it is the one city that deserves to be called a royal city. And it was in this city that there was, first of all, a temple built to Caesar Augustus, and that made it a royal city. He came to this area. It's a very beautiful area, and in wintertime it got cold in Rome, and he would come over here. There was a great healing spa there that we're going to talk about in just a few minutes. And this was indeed a great city. In fact, the three great cities along the coast were Ephesus in the south, then Ismir, or Smyrna, and then Pergamum in the north. So that this city, although not a seacoast town as the others were, it was a great city. But it was doomed, of course, because it was off these great trade routes that came out of the Orient and came to the sea coast. It just missed it. But it was a great fortified stronghold city. It was built to withstand the enemy. And it was the capital of the kingdom of Pergamum. And its acropolis, for it was built first down below where there is today a little town, a miserable, poor Turkish town. But the Acropolis still stands there, and the ruins of the great temples and the city 
are on top of it. It's probably the most imposing ruins of any of them, with the exception of Ephesus. And, of course, Ephesus was not built upon a mountain as this one was. The Acropolis dominated the whole region of the valley of the Caicos. The original city was built between the two rivers that flowed into the Caicos, the Bergama and the Castel, and they entirely surrounded this tremendous mountain, this promontory that stood out there alone. It's very impressive to visit it. First of all, you see that great mountain standing there, and you see the ruins on top. However, it was built by Lysimachus. Alexander the Great took it, but Lysimachus, his general, took over, and it became a great city under his direction and under his leadership. Now, there was there, built on this promontory, great pagan temples. There was the temple of Athena, the temple of Demeter, the temple of Hera, the temple of Dionysius, and the temple of Aesculapius. It can be pronounced several different ways. That was the god of healing and the great altar of Zeus. And it stands there today very imposing. And they found the image that went on top. It's at a school in England taken there many years ago. Now, this is the great city, and it was a city that was given over to paganism. Religion was the big thing that took place in Pergamum. There was on top also the greatest library that the pagan world ever had. It was a library of over 200,000 volumes that were the new type of writing material. They had used papyrus up to that time, but here they used parchment, and parchment gets its name from Pergamum. And this great library was the library that Mark Antony gave to his girlfriend, Cleopatra, and she lugged it off to Alexandria and Egypt. And that library is considered the greatest library the world has ever seen. Well, it actually came from Pergamum. And if you are ever in Istanbul and go into Hagia Sophia, you'll see there a great alabaster vase. I guess you'd call it a vase because it's such a thing of beauty. It's taller than I am. I stood by the side of it. And it came from Pergamum. This city, of course, was certainly rifled and denuded by the enemy when they finally took the city and destroyed it. But it was Lysimachus that brought it to its heyday. And it was a city that equaled both Smyrna and Ephesus. We're told here that it's to the angel or the messenger of the church And these things saith he which hath the sharp sword with two edges. This sharp sword with two edges is the Word of God. Now, the Word of God is the answer to man's need and man's sin. And here it was false religion. In fact, this city emphasized religion, and it had some of the greatest temples that were there. The only way that this city could be reached would be with the Word of God. Now, he says in verse 13, "...I know thy works and where thou dwellest, 
even where Satan's seat is, and thou holdest fast my name, and hast not denied my faith, even in those days wherein Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was slain among you, where Satan dwelleth. The Lord here, if you'll notice, commands this church, and there are here several things that he commands it for. He takes note of their circumstances. And he does that, I think, of many of us today. Sometimes you and I are inclined to condemn someone who happens to be in circumstances that if you and I were in the same circumstances, we might act even worse than they are acting. Our Lord takes note of that. Now, it's even where Satan's throne is. That reveals that religion was big business and that Satan had his headquarters there in Pergamum. This ought to answer the question of those who think Satan is in hell. He never has been to begin with. Hell hasn't opened up to do business yet. We don't get to that. We get to the end of the book of Revelation. And he's not there. He goes up and down this world seeking whom he may devour. But he does have headquarters. And at that time, that was in Pergamum. And we'll see why his headquarters would normally be there. Now, I think since then, he's moved headquarters around from different places. I used to get the impression he'd moved his headquarters to Los Angeles. And I'm not sure, but what that could be true, because here's another great religious center of every kind of cult and ism and schism that is possible. But here in this city, they had all of this. And let me mention what I believe he means by the fact that Satan's seat or Satan's throne was there in Pergamos. The reason for that is because of these heathen temples there, and they're all quite interesting, by the way. The temple of Athena there was very imposing. As you enter the gate of the city, it is the first temple right to your left as you enter. And then right above it was this great library that was there. Then you will find that there was the great temple to Caesar Augustus and the great temple to Hadrian. And that temple of Hadrian covers quite a bit of territory up there. Now, there are other things that are quite interesting. There is that great altar down there of Zeus, and there was an idol on it, and apparently it was just outside the gates, by the way, and right near where the palace of the king was. It was a very imposing spot, and there are those that believe that was the throne of Satan. Well, I think it enters into it, but you have a combination here of all of these. And I think there are two others that are specially imposing. There was the temple of Dionysius. Now, I crawled down the side of that mountain to get pictures of the ruins of the temple of Dionysius, which is right by the ruins of the theater there. And some have asked me why I did that. Well, Dionysius was the same as Bacchus, the god of wine. And you know that that was the goat god. You remember, he had horns, 
He had the upper part of a man, but the lower part was a goat, and he had cloven feet and a tail. Now, the modern idea of Satan is that, but you don't get that from the Bible. The idea of Satan today is that he has horns, he has cloven feet, and he has a forked tail. Where does that come from? It comes from the temple of Dionysius. It comes from the god Bacchus, the god of wine, the god of alcohol. Today in this country, there are those that raise the question whether we should have a day of humiliation or not. And we ought to be proud we are Americans and all of that. My friend, it wouldn't hurt us to humble ourselves today. Do you know how we got this country that we live in? We got it from the Indians. And I guess they got it from somebody in the same method, only the way we got it was not by bullets, but by liquor, by alcohol. That's the way Hawaii was taken away from the Hawaiians, was by giving them liquor. Alcohol has taken more territory than anything else. This is a picture of Satan, let me tell you, and there's no picture quite like him. Then the other was the god Esculapius. And down from this great promontory was the greatest hospital of the ancient world. It was the Mayo brothers of that day. It was, first of all, a temple to Esculapius. And if you're looking at the Greek Esculapius, it's a man. But when you bring in the Anatolian or the Oriental, it's a serpent. And there in Pergamum, it's a serpent. I have pictures I've taken of that great marble. Well, it's just an obelisk there now, but it apparently was a pillar in a temple, and the temple of Escalapius. It's an unusual temple. It's round. They used every means that were imaginable there of healing. They used psychology. They used medicine. They used about everything you could think of. They had a big, long tunnel when you went in. And up above it looks like air holes for ventilation, but they're not. As you went down the way, sexy voices would come down through those saying to you, you're going to get well, you're going to feel better, you're going to be healed. Does that sound like anything that's modern today? And you went on down, they gave you hot baths, there were massages that were used. They had a little theater there that they gave plays of healing. My, I tell you, they had it all. They had a library with books about healing. And then, as a last resort, if they couldn't heal you, they put you down in that temple at night. And then they turn loose during the night non-poisonous snakes, and they crawl over you. <laughs> That's known as the shock treatment today. And my friend, if that didn't heal you, it'd drive you crazy, that's for sure. And they had a back door where they took the dead out. They didn't mention the ones they didn't heal. They mentioned the one they did. Caesar Augustus loved to come there. You know why? He wasn't exactly sick. He was an alcoholic. They just dried him out there every year when he would come over. This was a great place, and for 700 years... It was a hospital that they came to from all over the world. And may I say to you, healing was satanic in those days. 
Now, there were good men that used medicine there. No question about that. But basically, it was satanic. Here was where Satan's throne was, and that's important to see. Now, he says, you have those that hold fast my name. Well, this is the period when many in the church defended the deity of Christ and the name of Christ. It was during this period that great giants were produced. There was the Arian heresy that denied the deity of Christ. And Athanasius from North Africa, how he defended the deity of Christ. And then at the Council of Nicaea, where Athanasius spoke, it condemned Arianism in about 325 A.D. And then there was Augustine. He answered the Pelagian heresy, which denied original sin and the total corruption of human nature and also irresistible grace, so that great men stood for the great doctrines of the Christian faith. And then he says, "'Thou hast not denied my faith.'" And the church during this period did not deny it. Now, Antipas, an unknown martyr, is mentioned here, that he says, "'I know thy works, where thou dwellest, even where Satan's throne is. Thou holdest fast my name, hast not denied my faith, even in those days where an Antipas was my faithful martyr.'" Now, that doesn't mean that he was the only one. He apparently was the first one, and that led off with a great company of them. Then he says, "...but I have a few things against thee, because thou hast them that hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed unto idols to commit fornication." He condemns two things here, the doctrine of Balaam and the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. And it was a very dark time in the history of these people. The doctrine of Balaam is different than the era of Balaam, which we saw in Jude, which actually revealed that Balaam thought he could curse Israel because they were sinners. And then the way of Balaam in Second Peter, and that was covetousness. But here, what we have is that Balaam taught Balak to have the Moabite women to go in among the children of Israel. And there was this period of intermarriage and the introduction of idolatry. You see, the world came into the church during this period. Now, he says here, "...thou hast those that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate." The church in Ephesus hated it, but here... There was some holding that doctrine. And just what it was, apparently it was a return to religious rituals by a clergy instead of the fact that there is the priesthood of all believers. And Christ says he hates this. You see, Christ hates as well as loves. And we better be careful that we're not indulging in the thing that he hates. Get us in trouble. Now, I begin reading here at verse 16. He says to this church, and we're speaking now to the church in Pergamum, "...repent, or else I will come unto thee quickly. I will fight against them with the sword of my mouth." In other words, the only cure was repentance. They needed to turn to God and the sword of my mouth. And the only answer is the Word of God, as this letter reveals it's not in any church today. 
What a mistake we make if we think that the church is the answer. Now, the true church made up of believers in Christ are the body of Christ, and they're to be lights in the world, as he makes it clear here. But we need to be very careful that it's not the church, it's the person that you identified with. And it's the Word of God that becomes our authority. Now he says in verse 17, "...he that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith to the churches." And this is for you and me today. "...to him that overcometh will I give to you to the hidden manna." That hidden manna was the Word of God. This is the hidden manna. And I'll give him a white stone, and in the stone a new name written, which no man knoweth, saving he that receiveth him. Now, the one that overcomes is the believer in Christ. We overcome by the blood of the Lamb, never because we are overcomers, but we overcome by the blood of the Lamb. Now, this hidden manna, again, it speaks of the Word of God, but of the person and death of Christ. The Lord Jesus said he was the bread. Moses didn't give you the true manna. He is that. And the believer needs to feed on Christ. I want to emphasize it again. This is a must for spiritual growth. And actually, Christ is hidden from view today. He's not known or understood today at all. My, how they have abused him and how they have missed out altogether. Now, the white stone suggests the believer's not blackballed. You're never blackballed in heaven. This is rather a difficult figure to interpret. White is everywhere the color and livery of heaven is the way Trench put it. Now, the stone, I think, and let me just say this, the stone here is not a new name for you and me. Christ is going to give to each one of his own a stone, and that was the way they did things in those days. If you had an intimate friend, you gave them a stone with a little message on it, some word or some name that you'd given them. And on that stone is not a new name for you and me. It's a new name for him in a way in which he means to you, he doesn't mean to me. And the way in which he means to me is not the way he means to you. And each one of these names, I think, will be different, and it will be personal, and it will be intimate. Now, that's going to get rid of that song, There's a New Name Written Down in Glory, and It's Mine. Well, you can sing that all you want to. The new name is not a new name It's a new heart that you've been given, a new life. You've been born again into the family of God. Now, I don't know about your new name there. Scripture doesn't mention that. But he has a new name he gives to us. Now, when we come here to the letter of Christ to the church in Thyatira. Now, this is Romanism. This takes us into the Dark Ages from 590 to approximately 1517. It was a dark period. Thyatira was inland. You begin to move inland when you leave Pergamum. All the rest of these churches are inland, some of them way inland, as we're going to see. But Thyatira was situated in a very beautiful place. All these cities, to my judgment, were in a very marvelous location. And this church was Thyatira was in a location where, very frankly, 
I'd like to pass on to you what Sir William Ramsey says about it. He says, Thyatira was situated in the mouth of a long vale which extends north and south, connecting the Hermas and Caicos valleys. And it was at not a great pass. In fact, it was an unusual city. It was a city built for defense. But most of the cities built for defense were built upon a necropolis or a promontory and walls put around them. But this city was different. And the strength of it was in the fact that the elite guard was there. It was a city that was built by Lysimachus again and then by Seleucus. Seleucus is the one that brought it to prominence. And it was a city that was a military city. The elite guard was there. Rome put the elite guard there. And it was strong because of the guard that was there. But it finally fell to the enemy. And no city was ever so destroyed in that area as this city was, and then rebuilt. So that you see very little of the ruins. And it's rather disappointing to see the ruins of Thyatira today. They only cover one block, and it's a very small block that is there today. But it was a city that was sponsored by Vespasian, the Roman emperor, and it was the headquarters for many of the ancient guilds, the potters, the tanners, the weavers, the robe makers, the dyers' guild. All had their headquarters there. This is where the labor unions originated, by the way. Paulus was the sun god that was worshipped there under the name of Trimnus. And then Lydia, you remember that Paul met over in Philippi. She came from Thyatira, and she was a seller of purple. Now, that purple is what we know today as turkey red. And I mean, that's red, friends. And it was taken from a plant that grows in that area. Now, here is what he says. And unto the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These things saith the Son of God, who hath his eyes like a flame of fire, his feet are like fine brass. Now, you notice it's a church that he's judging. The flame of fire, his eyes, he's searching out, and his feet like burnished brass. And that speaks of judgment also as we've seen. Now, he has a word of commendation for this church. If you think Roman Catholicism is to be condemned wholeheartedly, 100%, I think that you need to check up on the history of it. The Lord Jesus says in verse 19, I know thy works, and thy love, and service, and faith, and thy patience, and thy works, and the last to be more than the first. Now he says, I know thy works. And here are six words of commendation to this church of the dark ages. Works are actually just credentials of the true believers. James says, show me your faith without your works. I'll show you my faith by my works. There were many who lived spotless lives, and by their good works they adorned the doctrine of God. And then love. It was a church that had love in it in spite of the fact it had gone in for ritualism. It had not completely died during the Dark Ages. And there are some wonderful saints of God during that period. Bernard of Clairvaux and Peter Waldo, John Wycliffe, John Huss, Savonarolo, and Anselm. All of these were men that were in the Roman church. Here he mentions their faith. 
and is placed after their works and their love in this instance because it's the main spring that turns the hands of works and love. And the ministry here is service. Patience was the fact they endured during those days of darkness. And the last works were more than the first. Now, in this church, works increased rather than diminished, by the way. All six virtues are produced within the believers by the Holy Spirit. There is one frightful charge of condemnation. He says here, and I'm reading my translation, But I have against you that you tolerate the woman Jezebel, who calls herself the prophetess, and she teaches and seduces my servants to commit fornication and to eat things sacrificed to idols. This was the period when this woman Jezebel brought paganism into Israel, the northern kingdom. Now, this was the period that, as the church expanded throughout Europe, idolatry and pagan practice were mingled with Christian worship. The papacy was elevated to a place of secular power under Gregory the First in 590 A.D., and later by Gregory the Seventh, better known as Hildebrand, in 1073 through 1085. And then this is the period that introduced rituals, personal faith in Jesus Christ, and church doctrine was supplanted by rituals. Here was the period of the worship of the virgin and child introduced, and the mass, and it became a part of church service. Purgatory became a positive doctrine, and mass was said for the dead. And these spurious documents labeled the donation of Constantine and the decretals of Isidore were circulated to give power and rulership to the pope. As Jezebel killed Naboth and persecuted God's prophets, so the church instituted the Inquisition during this period. And seduce here means a fundamental departure from the truth. That's Vincent's interpretation. Now, Jezebel stands in sharp contrast to Lydia, who came from Thyatira. Jezebel is merely a forerunner of the apostate church, we'll see in Revelation 17. Now, he says, I gave her space to repent of her fornication. She repented not. And there's been no change down through the centuries in this system. Verse 22, Behold, I'll cast her into a bed, and them that commit adultery with her into great tribulation, except they repent of their deeds. Great tribulation could refer to the persecution that Rome is enduring, I think, under communism, and has. Or it may mean the great tribulation into which the apostate church will go. Their deeds here should be translated her deeds. And he says, And I will kill her children with death, and all the churches shall know that I am he that searcheth the reins and hearts, and I'll give unto every one of you according to your works. Children are those that were brought up in the system. And death refers to the second death. And all the churches are the church of all the ages. And reigns means here actually kidneys, and it refers to the total psychological makeup, the thoughts, the feelings, and the purposes. He searcheth the reins, that is, our entire being. Now, verse 24, he says here, But I say unto you, and unto the rest in Thyatira, who do not hold this doctrine, which are 
of those who have not known the depths of Satan, as they say, I will put upon you none other burden. Actually, this church here, we know from history, had a very brief period because it went down when the city went down, when the enemy came in. Now, the depths of Satan refer perhaps to a Gnostic sect known as the Ophites who worshipped a serpent. And they made a parody of Paul's words. All heresy boasts of superior spiritual perception. And that's what this group did. Now, in verse 25, "...but that which ye have already hold fast till I come." And that obviously begins now to say to the church, I'm coming to take you out, and because of that you should stand for me. And he says, "...he that overcometh and keepeth my works..." Under the end, to him I'll give power over the nations. The works of Christ are in contrast to the works of Jezebel. The works of Christ are wrought by the Holy Spirit, and we overcome by faith and not by effort. And give power over the nations is explained when Paul wrote to the Corinthians and said we're to rule over the nations, even angels. Verse 28, he says, I'll give him the morning star. And this bright and morning star refers to the hope of the church today. The rapture of the church is coming for his own, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And now he gives to this church the same he gives to all. Verse 29, "...he that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. The children of Jezebel will not hear, but the true children of the Lord Jesus will hear." For the Spirit opens blood-tipped ears. And we're seeing that. And out of both Protestantism and Romanism, there are multitudes that are turning to Christ. And this is a wonderful thing. 